You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Dr. Timothy Larson is McManus Professor of Christian Thought at Wheaton College. He received his PhD from the University of Stirling in Scotland. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and he has been a visiting fellow at Trinity College, Cambridge, and All Souls College, Oxford. He is the author of several books, including John Stuart Mill, A Secular Life, The Slain God, Anthropologists and the Christian Faith, a people of one book, The Bible and the Victorians, and his book, Crisis of Doubt, Honest Faith in 19th Century England. The book of his, which we will be discussing today, is entitled, George MacDonald in the Age of Miracles, Incarnation, Doubt, and Re-Enchantment. Welcome, Dr. Larson, to the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm pleased to be here. Well, the book cover of 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 the of the book about George MacDonald uh, features images of roses and flames, and these two important symbols in MacDonald's thought combine into MacDonald's idea of the rose fire. You begin chapter three of your book entitled "George MacDonald and the Reenchantment of the World" with this characterization of the rose fire: "There is a mystical mystical fire which is comprised of roses, red mingled with white. It is tended by the Lady of the Silver Moon." although you might know her by one of her other names. The rose fire has many blessings it can confer. It has the power to heal. Curdy, to his own surprise, finds that his leg, which was lame, has become perfectly sound when he, as it were, wakes up and smells the roses. It has the power to restore. For a whole year, his majesty had been reduced to a helpless stupor, but the fire brought him back to himself. Quote, He woke like a giant, refreshed with wine. A heavenly odor of roses filled the air. The king opened his eyes and the soul of perfect health shone out of them, unquote. It has the power to bestow spiritual gifts. Curdy, doing as he was bidden, thrusts his hands into the fire and receives for his pains the gift of discernment of spirits. Most of all, it has the power to purge, to clean, to sanctify, and to make holy. So could you say some more about the rose fire of George MacDonald? Uh, I would love to. So George MacDonald, of course, is primarily a fantasy author. And so he is taking you into these fantasy stories. He's a pioneer of that genre. Think like, you know, C.S. Lewis with Narnia or uh, J.R.R. Tolkien with The Lord of the Rings. So he's creating this fantasy world, but he's communicating spiritual truths through that fantasy world. And so one of them is this rose fire. And the truth that he's communicating is that something can be both painful but beneficial. And so the rose part tells you that there's a sweetness to this, that there's a beauty to this, that there is a pleasing fragrance that tells you that it's wholesome. And why is fire wholesome? Fire is wholesome because it purifies primarily. And so, yes, it does uh create short-term pain, but it creates long-term gain. And so some things can be unpleasant in life that are nevertheless making us into better people. And McDonald believed that strongly. There's a a character in the quotes named Curdy. Who is he and what book is this from? So there's two stories. Um, The first one is called um, The Princess and the Goblins. And the second one is called The Princess and Curdy. But Curdy shows up in both of them. Uh, he's really the main character of the second one, um, but the kind of secondary character of the first one. And so it is this kind of fairy tale like world where there is a princess and there are evil goblins, uh, particularly in the first story. Um, he rescues the princess um, from a plot from the goblins. And in the, in the second one, he is called on an adventure himself, which eventually leads him to rescue the king. And that's where that quotation comes from. Okay. All right. For MacDonald, a key understanding was that all of creation in both blessings and difficulties, joy and sorrow, is moving purposefully towards God's intended end. In a section entitled, A Great Good is Coming, you write, 
The mature George MacDonald thought of himself as someone who had rejected Calvinism, and this is often emphasized in secondary sources, but it is important to grasp what is precisely is and is not meant by this. What he viscerally rejected was the doctrine of double predestination. Reading him today, however, one of the most striking features of his theology is its robust, prominent, and unflinching belief in divine providence. Could you say more about MacDonald's understanding of divine providence and how this connects with his confidence that a great good is coming? Yes, I think it's a universal Christian conviction that all things work together for good, that whatever happens, God in the end wins. He takes those events and he turns them to something that is for his glory and that is for good and that is redemptive. Um, McDonald pushes that harder than some Christians do, and that's the kind of Calvinist side of him that remains. He kind of looks more directly at events and sees them as in some way good because they are leading on to God working them for good. And so there's a side of McDonald, even when he's ill, who's you know willing to kind of thank God that he's ill because he's confident that it's working out something that needs to be worked out that is for good. Yeah, the uh, the Calvinism was both his foil, in some ways, uh, but it was also determinative determinative of his overall disposition of a sovereign God. And uh, so it would be a mistake to say that he sort of absolutely rejected Calvinism. That's right. And, and this is a, um, a difference in people's temperaments, and therefore it's kind of a pastoral issue. There are people who find it very revolting to think that this bad thing that's happening is some way God has um, willed it. But there are people who find it comforting, who feel like th- that God is in control, that therefore they're going to get through this, and that it has a purpose and a meaning. And I've kind of, the longer I live, the more I see that that is not like a right or a wrong. It's just like a different way that people process and perceive things, whether they find that comforting or not. Uh, so McDonald was on the side of finding it comforting. Yeah. There was a lady in a church I pastored who had a saying, which was everything in life comes to me bearing a gift. Hmm. And uh, so, and she went through, some very difficult things in her life. But when you talked with her about them, she would always tell you about the gift that the difficult thing brought to her. And, and I, I think that the part of that that's um, difficult is that often we don't know that until later, I think, you know, sometimes even much later. And so in the moment, right. um, whether that is a reassuring idea or just a distracting idea, I think People, that lands different for different people. But yeah. I think often in retrospect, we can see how something has made us the people that we are and has brought us a kind of maturity or a wisdom or a capacity for helping others that has a good to it. Yes, uh, the sort of McDonald and this woman that I'm referring to seem to have the prescience to, in the midst of the difficult thing, be mm-hmm. actively looking for and reflecting upon what good there could be uh in it. And like you say, for some people that works or others, you know, it's not till much later on that they might be willing to even reflect on something like that. But McDonald's, even in the midst of his own illness and suffering, seemed to want to be embraced that there was something good that was happening. That's right. Uh, uh, if I can just distract on this just for a moment, you know, Jesus told us how to respond to people who are suffering. He said that we mourn with those who mourn. Uh, we accompany them in their grief, in their pain, in their suffering. And so I, what, what that means to me is there is no Christian answer that makes mourning go away, that makes grieving go away, that makes pain go away. And so I think sometimes people say, you know, um, what is the Christian response or what does God have to say about this as if you could say something that erases grief or that erases pain. And that's not the Christian view. Jesus didn't say we can say something that makes it go away. He said that we accompany people in the midst of it. Well, George MacDonald had a strong belief in the continuance of life after death into an even more profound kind of life. You describe his, you describe MacDonald as a great prophet of the afterlife. About this you write, in Christian theology, sanctification, whatever else it might be, is an eschatological hope. Therefore, not unrelatedly, George MacDonald was also a great prophet of the afterlife. His earliest childhood memory was of a funeral and MacDonald was invariably a reassuring presence in the face of death. 
During their engagement, Louise's mother died, and MacDonald's radiant faith was a comfort to her whole family. Uh, writing, quote, Death is not an end, but a fresh beginning, the grandest birthday of all, the getting out of the lobby into the theater, unquote. Could you say more about this? Yeah, it's very similar to what we've just been talking about, that MacDonald has this amazing ability to see in the midst of suffering the wider picture and the wider story. And he feels that way about life as a whole. Christians believe in an afterlife, but for some of us, I think that is more kind of dim and abstract and remote, where for MacDonald, it was particularly active and vivid and clear that our lives are triumphant after our deaths because of the work of Christ that there is this glorious next chapter coming and that, that we can rejoice that people are there now. We can face death with a confidence that it's not the end, that we're entering into the glorious part of our story. And he was able to hold those truths vividly in place, even in the midst of people he loved dearly dying, even when facing the possibility of his own death. Yes, it seemed that he understood, even though that this life is very real, in all of its reality, it's still but a shadow compared to what he saw to be coming. Yes. Yeah, so, so you hear in that, you know, C.S. Lewis talking about Shadowlands. And of course, um, C.S. Lewis called George MacDonald my master. He was deeply influenced by him. And so you see the kind of accord between their thinking with that. Sure. Now, one great question about the afterlife is how spiritual progress will continue. MacDonald believed the afterlife or the coming ages would involve continuing purification of souls. About this, you write, then there was his attraction to something like a doctrine of purgatory. While many Protestants seem reticent to grasp this, it seems to me that something akin to an event of purgation is a theological necessity. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen. If they really think about it, it does not seem to me that most Protestants seriously believe that God is willing to compromise with sin and allow it into his heaven. We will not still be contaminated with lust, greed, envy, and pride in the life eternal, and therefore it must have been eradicated, purged out of us before we enter into paradise. Nevertheless, I have referred to this reality as an event of purgation rather than as purgatory. I was wondering if you could say more about this. Absolutely. So, I am a Protestant, and I have no doubt that the doctrine of purgatory was greatly abused in the medieval period. I know many Roman Catholics would agree with that completely. Um, there was um, this kind of pseudoscience that you could calculate how many years somebody was in purgatory and kind of knock things off that account if you did certain things. Um, there was a very kind of literal thinking about it being a sort of place. Uh, so those things, I think, are discredited. But I'm trying to say maybe Protestants have so been allergic to that and have pushed it so far that they haven't seen the truth, which is purgation, that we will end up being holy, which means that the part of us that is still sinful will be purged out. I think that that is really sound theology, um, but it does open a lot of doors because if there is purgation after death, then the question becomes, well, how wide is that for um, people, maybe people that we think of as very inadequate in the way that they've lived, in their character, in their habits, maybe there is a purgation for them in which they also will see the Lord, not because he doesn't care about their sin, but because he's purged it away. Well, uh, one of the quotes from McDonald, I may not be getting this exactly right, but I think he said something along the lines like, uh, the devil must come out every hair and feather. So it's not sort of the idea that, oh, we can look forward to just getting into heaven and, I don't know, smuggling in with us <laughs> some of our uh, unforgiveness or uh, our attitudes that are less than, than holy, that we're not going to be able to hold on to imperfections eternally so that who we are in heaven um, is will not be an extinction of who we are now, but it will be a glorification, a removal then of everything that is finally unworthy so that who we are truly to become will come into its full, its full being. McDonald 
strongly believed in the doctrine of the holiness of God and of God's absolute opposition to sin. So those are very kind of central motivating views, how he approaches things. And so he's very clear that you're not going to be able to hold on to your sin. Your sin has to be eradicated. That is what it means to be in relationship with a holy God, is to have your sins eradicated. Now, obviously, in our life on earth, the blood of Christ covers our sins, but that is an interim plan. The plan for eternity is not that we're still sinful, but God is overlooking it. The plan is that we actually are holy. Well, when it comes to McDonald's view of hell, you make the following observation. The great error is imagining that you are going to find some way to hold on to your sin permanently. McDonald is known for questioning the traditional doctrine of eternal punishment, but once again, it is a mistake to imagine that he opted for some kind of sentimental fluffy view. His teaching on hell is, in a way, arguably more uncompromising than that of many traditionalists. McDonald insisted that even in hell, someone will still not be allowed to hold on to their sin. So that's kind of a, a continuation of what we were talking about before. Yes, it is. Uh, so it's a, you know a more radical demand of God's holiness and God's absolute unwillingness to compromise with sin. That even uh, if you go to hell, it is not over yet. So it's a complicated thing our, to think about or to think about in a different way. But I, one way of looking at it is I think that McDonald sees heaven, purgatory, and hell is all places where you experience the presence of God because the presence of God is everywhere. The difference is not where you're at or that you're experiencing the presence of God. The difference is your disposition to that presence. So an analogy that I would use is you might really loathe and hate somebody. And if they came over and touched you, it would just make you feel like really creeped out and, and revolted. But maybe in a few years time, you would come to love that person. And if they came over and touched you, it would make you feel very warm and very reassured. The event is the exact same. It is your disposition that has changed. And so McDonald, I think, sees hell as the place where you are rejecting God and hating him and find, therefore, his love repulsive. Purgatory is where you still have things to be worked out, but you're working your way towards God's love. And heaven is where you are fully excited and embracing God's love. And so for McDonald's, certainly, um, whether you're in hell or purgatory can change based on your disposition. You can you can turn towards the love of God. Well, I've told uh, some people ask me if I believe in hell, and I say yes. As a matter of fact, the hell I believe in is uh, is quite terrifying because um, the sin that I might want to or be deceived into thinking that I want to hold on for eternity, I will not be able to. Finally, God will find ways of revealing to me just how ugly it is. So there is, there's no way that I can finally escape that, that I can finally escape the redemptive purposes of God. The, like, like McDonald said, the devil's going to have to come out every hair and feather. So why would I want to try to hold on to something that God may be forced to use some severe measures <laughs> in order to, in order to help me ultimately let go of it? Yes, that's certainly McDonald's view. He, uh, the, the Victorians used a phrase called the hidden hope. So they felt like it was not, we did not have warrant from scripture to proclaim that everybody would be saved. But you could speculate and hope if you didn't make it part of the proclamation. And I think that's where McDonald is at. He's care because of that, he's careful what he says and doesn't say. But my instinct is that he thinks, you know, you can you have free will and you're free to get into a staring contest with God, but he has a suspicion that God will win in the end, you know. So <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, referring to one of McDonald's fairy stories, you make this observation regarding the way McDonald viewed the whole of God's ultimate redemptive plan and creation. Quote 
The goblin fairies taunt Anodos by chanting, Look at him, look at him. He has begun a story without a beginning, and it will never have any end. Unquote. MacDonald did not make that mistake. His theological vision was firmly located in a narrative with a beginning, middle, and an end. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. His approach in this regard was deeply Augustinian. As we have stressed, MacDonald's belief in the providential uses of suffering is it is important to observe also that this was relativized in his thought by a prelapsarian perspective. Quote, and first I would remind them that all suffering is against the ideal order of things. God dislikes it. He is then on our side in the matter. So I was wondering if you could say some more about this as well as that theological word prelapsarian. Yes, uh, prelapsarian just means the way it was before the fall. So kind of the ideal of a good humanity in Eden. And I, I thank you for bringing that quote out and highlighting it because it does balance what I was saying earlier about, for me, McDonald is a little too unflinching and um, kind of rigidly um, kind of stoical in his view that suffering is good. Uh, so you could read bits of McDonald and it seems like he's just saying, this is good because, in, because God's working something out. But here he's correcting that and saying, no, mm -hmm. suffering is not good in and of itself. Suffering is bad in and of itself. God's against it. He doesn't want it. He created a world that would be free of it. Then the fall happened. And he's now, through Jesus Christ, creating a new heaven and a new earth in which, once again, there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain. So that is what God stands for. He doesn't stand for, isn't it great to have suffering because it teaches you things and, you know, um, makes you better. That, that is a provisional view, not an ultimate view. God's ultimate view is that suffering is not the world that he created, not the world that he wants. And therefore, for me, pastorally, when we revolt and say, this is wrong, this should not happen, God's with us on that. He's, he, he agrees. So uh, in my understanding of Calvinist theology, a prelapsarian approach would be that God makes the eternal decrees uh, regarding salvation knowing full well that there is going to be a fall that is going to occur and that that's all going to happen. And then the infralapsarian um, or the, the post-lapsarian, I mean, uh, supralapsarian position is that God then makes the decree of salvation after the fall. Does the, is that how you understand it? Yeah, that, that's, uh, I, I was just using that word just to mean pre-fall without getting into the decrees. So okay. I wasn't, I wasn't mapping McDonald onto the, onto the Calvinist decrees with that comment. Um, but that, that is uh, true Calvinist theology. I don't know um, where McDonald would stand on those differences, which is interesting. Um, there, more and more the Victorians had a view, I think even one of McDonald's spiritual mentors uh, that Christ would have become incarnate even if there had been no fall. Uh, so I think he would go in that direction. Yeah, there was a lot of reflection on what was God, what was God thinking in the beginning? What was the plan of God in the beginning? And then therefore, what would be the fulfillment of God's ultimate plans? And how did all of that, how did all that fit together in an overall theological narrative? Yeah, the, the, the church father Irenaeus in the second century he argued uh, that God's plan was for humanity to gain the knowledge of good and evil. They just went about it the wrong way. So eating from the tree kind of symbolizes them choosing to gain that knowledge in an illicit way. But God's plan was for them to become educated and matured and to develop and to have that knowledge as well. And so he kind of envisioned, again, a not like everything would say static the way it was uh, in the beginning, but that he would unfold through a plan of righteousness that would also bring this um, knowledge with it. Okay, that's interesting. Well, one of the most problematic doctrines of Calvinism is the idea that humans are not only saddled with original sin, but also given by God the prospect of a limited atonement. God only makes provision to save some, not all. MacDonald affirmed the reality of the effects of original sin, but he rejected the idea of limited atonement. About this you write, In Lilith we read, Evil was only through good, selfishness but a parasite on the tree of life. Lilith's evil was what God could not have created. MacDonald believed 
in the doctrine of original sin, reflecting humbly, they tell me I was born in sin, and I know it to be true. Elsewhere, he wrote this on the redemption that is the antidote to the fall. Quote, I believe in the degraded and worthless condition of man as regards that which is good and holy. I believe in the perfect and full atonement of Jesus Christ. I was wondering if you could elaborate some more on all of this. Yeah, so what um, the doctrine of original sin meant to Augustine and many Christians, part of why it was important to them, including George MacDonald, is they saw it, if you didn't believe in original sin, that people are born into a sinful condition, then you could believe that some people didn't need a savior. Because everyone needs Jesus to be their savior, therefore there's a condition that we're all in that we need being saved from. And that's what's called original sin. That is in some ways distinct from the question of free will. Do, is there a free offer of the gospel that anybody can respond to? And so I see George MacDonald as in a tradition which believes in original sin, but also believes in free will. And therefore, the gospel proclamation goes to all people, and therefore everyone has the possibility to respond to it. Right. Well, and that would be sort of distinct from classical Calvinism. And, and, and if you're born in a totally depraved state, bearing the, bearing the guilt of original sin, then um, you don't have innately inside you the orientation or the desire for God. Therefore, no matter how often you heard the gospel, you would never respond to it because you weren't one of the elect. Yes, that's exactly right. But what I'm trying to emphasize, and I think what McDonald's emphasizing, is that many, many Christians have believed in original sin who have not believed in that Calvinist version of election. Yeah, yeah that's interesting in the way that, that McDonald um, has many very traditional ideas about the Christian faith. And it's just the way that he is he's putting them, that it's just the way that he's putting them together. He's not really introducing what I would call liberal notions into things, he's more or less putting together things in a way that, uh, I guess for him, uh, takes into account the best of the Christian tradition that he was around in his time. Yes. If you read MacDonald, you feel convicted. He is a prophet. He really is a prophet. I've just um, done an edition uh, for InterVarsity Press of his Diary of an Old Soul. He wrote a poem every day of the year for a year. And they are poems of dedication to God. They are poems desiring to be purged of his sin, to be faithful in service. They're challenging, frankly, because of his deep, deep desire to live the life that God calls people to live. So if liberal in your mind means like you just are kind of lazy and wishy-washy and trying to slough off the hard stuff, that is not George MacDonald. <laughs> Well, regarding the final outcome of creation, you write in the book that the perspective of Eden and of the eschaton strengthens one in this age to work for the coming of the kingdom of God. As Diamond reflects, reflects, this will never do. I can't give in to this. I've been to the back of the north wind. Things go right there, and so I must try to get things to go right here. I've got to find, I've got to fight the miserable things, unquote. The idea that things will ultimately turn out right in God's good creation seems to be where McDonald's theology headed, whereas C.S. Lewis imagined a hell where people could successfully lock themselves away forever from God. McDonald seemed more persuaded that given enough time, God would ultimately be victorious in delivering all of his fallen children from the grip of sin, death, and evil. Does that sound like a fair description of McDonald in relation to Lewis to you? So without question, even on this specific issue of the afterlife and hell, C.S. Lewis was deeply influenced by reading George MacDonald. So I see C.S. Lewis as having learned from and, and adopted views from George MacDonald. It's quite possible that their views are a little different, and I'm not as up on C.S. Lewis to parse that exactly right. Um, but I think maybe they're pretty similar, maybe... Um, Lewis is like leaning a little more towards trying to preserve the traditional view, and McDonald uh, um, is a little less concerned about doing that. Um, you know, somebody said, you know, eternity is a long time, especially towards the end. 
Um, and, and so I think that's McDonald's view that you have free will. So no one's going to, um, force you to turn towards God, but eternity is a long time. And so maybe at some point, eventually you're going to see that the way you're, um, approaching this is not serving you and that turning towards God, uh, would be serving you better. Uh, I suspect Lewis thought that as well, but again, uh, they're both in different ways working in this hidden hope tradition where they don't want to teach that, but they're willing to think about it or speculate about it or hope for it. Well, we've talked, we're talking mostly about McDonald's fictional works uh, today, but he also wrote a series of sermons called Unspoken Sermons. And, and in one of those sermons, was called the consuming fire. And it just, this conversation reminded me of this quote from the consuming fire where he said, uh, the outer darkness is, but the most dreadful form of the consuming fire, the fire without light, the darkness, visible, the black flame, God hath withdrawn himself, but not lost his hold. His face is turned away, but his hand is laid upon him. Still his heart has ceased to beat into the man's heart, but he keeps him alive by his fire. And that fire will go searching and burning on in him as in the as in the highest saint who is not yet pure as he is pure. But at length, O God, wilt thou not cast death and hell into the lake of fire, even into thine own consuming self? Death shall then die everlastingly, and hell itself will pass away and leave her dolorous mansions to the peering day. Then indeed wilt thou be all in all. For then, our poor brothers and sisters, everyone, O God, we trust in thee, the consuming fire shall have been burnt clean and brought home. He's so, so eloquent, isn't he? It's just, it's just, yes. it's just the, the rhetoric of that is so beautiful. His text is from Hebrews 12. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, and I think the thing that I was emphasizing earlier that I want to um, kind of underlay here or underline here is people sometimes think of like God has two sides. He's got a loving side and he's got a wrathful side, you know, and he kind of like, you got to get him in the right mood, catch him on the right side. Um, and McDonald, his view is it's all love, but the pain you experience is from love from a being that you, that, experiencing the love of a being that you hate. And so in the end, McDonald is arguing there, or at least, um, kind of creating a vision of a trajectory where the all-consuming love of God eventually triumphs over everything. Mm -hmm. he, uh, what's interesting to me is when he gets to that point, he, he begins to pose it as a question. Yes. But at length, O God, wilt thou not cast death and hell into the lake of fire, even into thine own consuming self? And so he is at once painting this picture but then also asking it in the form of a question. Exactly. That's the thing I've been emphasizing on the difference between being able to teach something as part of the gospel and being able to hope for something. And so he, he I think he's trying to walk that line, that he has a vision for a hopeful ending that he thinks is befitting the nature of God. Uh, but he's being careful to not say, I, you know, the disciples were not sent out into all the world to teach this, but we can hope from what we know of the nature of God, that this is true. Well, one of the observations you make in the book about MacDonald was about uh, the commitment he had to Scripture. MacDonald was particularly fond of reading his Greek New Testament, and about this you relate that, quote, MacDonald himself found much joy later in life in reading the New Testament in Greek every day and observed in particular that many parts of the epistles that he had found confusing in the past were now becoming clear to them. And the same holds true for the Old Testament. MacDonald had a particular love of the Psalms, Job, and Isaiah. He preached sermons from Old Testament texts and had sympathetic characters do so in his novels. When his son, Gravel, was uncertain as to his vocational path, MacDonald wrote him a letter of spiritual counsel in which all of the proof texts were from the Hebrew scriptures, including in quietness and confidence shall be your strength, Isaiah thirty fifteen. Perhaps not least telling is the prominence of the Old Testament in Lilith. 
just as C.S. Lewis was convinced that Father Christmas exists even in Narnia, so George MacDonald believed that the Word of God as given in Holy Scripture is living, enduring, and active even in the region of the seven dimensions where skeletons and phantoms fight in mad confusion. Not only do characters in Lilith speak of Adam, Noah, Lot's wife, and Rachel, but direct scriptural quotations recur throughout this pioneering work of fantasy literature, including these words of spiritual comfort. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 35. So what can you say about McDonald's approach to scripture and maybe also a little more about uh, the significance of his work, Lilith? Yes, thank you again. I'm glad you have highlighted this. This is similar to what we've been saying about him seeing that suffering can be used by God uh, for good, but also relativizing that by saying that God is against suffering. His ultimate plan is to eliminate it. So in the same way, um, McDonald was very concerned that people had doubts that were causing them to reject the gospel. Uh, and in his time, particularly, a lot of questions about the Old Testament, you know, do we have to believe uh, that Jonah really was swallowed by a whale and then spit out alive? Those kind of issues were very much debated in his day. And so how he responded to that was to focus very much on what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a disciple of Christ. What you focus on is the Gospels and particularly what Christ told you to do. Do you discern that Jesus is good? If he's good, are you willing to trust him and to follow him? If you want to follow him, then you do what he commanded you to do. And so he kind of would lead everybody to the Gospels and particularly the words of Christ. And therefore, he would bracket all that. You know, don't worry about, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and all of these things right now. I'm asking you a simple question. Do you uh, believe Jesus Christ was good? Do you trust him? Are you willing to follow him? You don't have to know the answer to all those things. You don't have to agree with all those things. You are starting on a journey of discipleship. So that over and over again, his writings, he does that move. And in his sermons as well. What I was saying in the quotation that you read was that didn't mean that he thought all the rest of the Bible could be thrown out and was not profitable. It, it can be profitable if you are first and foremost somebody focused on Jesus Christ and are following him. Um, I think that instinct is right. I, I do that in my own ministry. People will say, well, you know, what about um, massacres in the Old Testament and that kind of thing? And I will, my response will be, what did Jesus say about how we treat our enemies? We're followers of Jesus Christ. Whatever that text means or doesn't mean, our first priority is to follow Jesus, and this is how he told us to treat our enemies. So we know what is the right thing on that for us, and then over time we can think about, well, is there ways in which I can learn things from these Old Testament texts and um, find them edifying, which the answer to that for me is yes. The answer for George MacDonald was yes, but it wasn't the starting point. You didn't start there. You started with Jesus and being a disciple of him. Well, could you say a little bit more about uh, Lilith? In, in yeah. Book. So he wrote two books, Fantasties and Lilith. They um, just absolutely, there was nothing like them in literature up until that point. Um, they are very wild fantasy books. Uh, to this day, people often find them bewildering. But in the Victorian period, they were not prepared at all. Uh, mm -hmm. They had grown up on George, um, uh, sorry, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, they understood because Pilgrim's Progress is a allegory. Everything right. is very clearly labeled. You know what Doubting Castle, you know, is about, right. you know, <laughs> the giant despair. You know what it's about. Um, and so they kind of were used to um, allegorical writing, but they weren't used to fantasy writing. And so he takes you into this strange new alternative world and he's not making an allegory. Everything doesn't represent something else. It is, it's its own world with its own integrity. Um, he called them fairy tales for grownups. So they weren't children's literature either. They were adult fantasy literature, which was a genre that didn't exist. George MacDonald kind of invents it. But just because it's a fantasy world doesn't mean that it isn't communicating spiritual truths. And so both uh, Fantasies and Lilith 
are communicating spiritual truths, many of which we've talked about in this interview, but not in a simple one-to-one ratio. You know, this character represents, you know, the virtue of patience or something like that. It's not happening like that. It's happening um, with a world of its own fantasy, richness and integrity, but nevertheless, spiritual truths coming out of it. Well, um, because of uh, McDonald's uh, confidence or the trajectory that, or the suspicion that he had that all would be well in the end, some might want to categorize him as a liberal. But McDonald seems to me to be very staunchly conservative in many of his views around the basics of the Christian faith. And about this, you write, George McDonald had a notably conservative and high view of the veracity of the four Gospels. Again and again, he denied that the so-called synoptic problem compels us to assume that one or more Gospel writer must have been in error. Quote, no perplexity arises from the difference between the accounts, for there is only difference, not incongruity, unquote. Or again from another book, quote, there is not for that the smallest necessity for rejecting either account. They blend perfectly, and it is to me a joy unspeakable to have both put together. They give a completed con- conversation, unquote. MacDonald also was not at all inclined toward higher biblical criticism. He assumed that the traditionally identified authors of the Gospels are the correct ones. Not only did he believe that John's gospel was written by the apostle of that name, who was an eyewitness of the events he describes, MacDonald even endearingly argues that, as it was the last gospel to be written, we can trust its accuracy all the more because John had had more time to think through what precisely had happened. As a convert to Christ, the Reverend Thomas Wingfold is willing to admit that the story of the women caught in adultery is not part of the original text of John's gospel, but rather an interpolation. This concession, however, has no import in terms of how we receive this material. Quote, it all matters nothing so long as we can believe it, and true it must be, it is so like him all through. So I was wondering if you could say more about these things. Yeah, again, like like the way you set it up, there are people who often say that McDonald is a liberal. And the question is, what do you mean by that? Uh, he wrote a book um, called uh, The Miracles of Our Lord, which basically goes through every miracle in the gospel and um, brings out the truth of it on the assumption that it literally happened. So he's like not giving concession anywhere. Um, and there are a lot of people who will say that some of the miracles are true, but some of them are legendary. And he doesn't even do that. He, he's including them all. And as you brought out in that quote, there are people who tend to play the Gospels against each other and say they can't all be true because they contradict each other. Um, and he's saying, no, they actually kind of reinforce and harmonize one another rather than contradict one another. Uh, so all of that tells me just McDonald's deep delight in the Gospels. He loved to hear stories about Christ. He loved to hear the words of Christ. He loved to meditate on them. What he heard in them was a call by his Savior for how to live. He wasn't reading them critically. He was reading them as a disciple who wanted to know how to live, and he was confident that the Gospels uh, presented Jesus showing us how to live and telling us how to live. Well, some people today, you know, might... I think increasingly think of Christianity as a religion that is too narrow for the modern world, that it is um, too limited in the sense that it's, um, you know, its claim about Christ uh, being somehow decisive for everybody um, and that there is in the way it's presented, it seems like maybe there's even a narrowness in God's concern about who is finally, who is finally saved and who's finally not saved. But if you uh, if you look at McDonald, uh, to me he offers a vision a vision and scope of the Christian faith, which is thoroughly Christian, but very broad, very hopeful, very inclusive, and very wide. It doesn't seem to sacrifice anything of importance to me, um, but it seems to try to retain everything that is good and true and beneficial. It's hard for us because we're the finite beings. God is not finite, but we're finite. And therefore, we're located and biased. And God is the creator. He is the God of the whole world. He's the God of all people. And so, yeah, I think that the gap is 
not that God is too narrow, but that it's very hard for us to apprehend a God who is the God of all the earth, the God of all people, the God of all creation. Um, and so the gap is in our finitude, not in the reality of God. Well, that, that kind of leads me to, I want to ask you a little bit about the subtitle, because the subtitle of the book is Incarnation, Doubt, and Reenchantment. And it seems to me that our conversation is kind of leading a little bit in that direction. I was wondering if you could say about that incarnation, doubt, and reenchantment as your subtitle. Yeah. So the main title is George MacDonald in the Age of Miracles. And I was deliberately tweaking uh, a lot of Victorian scholarship, which tends to think of it as an age of doubt and an age of unbelief, which is absolutely wrong. The Victorian period was a period where people were deeply committed to faith and wrestling with faith. And so in my mind, these are three miracles, the miracle of the incarnation, uh, the miracle of faith, and the miracle of sanctification is how I see those those three sections. Uh, So the the incarnation, of course, is the gospel story. The fact that uh, God would become incarnate in Jesus Christ is a miraculous event. What I do in that uh, part is uh, show that Christmas as we know it is very Victorian, especially Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. But so many things that that we think of as Christmas uh, really come from the Victorians. And there's a connection between them really discovering in a new central vital way the doctrine of the incarnation, what it means that God would make holy a human life, the the human life that we live, that we dignify humanity by becoming a human being. Yeah, it seems like leading up in the period leading up to that time, the the, the focus really was on the cross almost yes. exclusively. And so then the Victorians say, wait a second, if we reflect on the incarnation, there's a lot there too. That's exactly right. And so the next part, uh, doubt, doubt is so misunderstood because doubt can only happen in a context of faith. Uh, to doubt something is to approach it in a context where it is believed. Um, otherwise, it's just unbelief. It's not doubt. Um, you don't say, I doubt George MacDonald wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. You just say George MacDonald did not write the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, it's not a question of doubt. It's a question of unbelief. Uh, so people thought, oh, the Victorians have doubt. Therefore, they don't have faith. Where actually doubt and faith are two sides of the same coin. To doubt something is to care about it, to be emotionally invested in it, to think about it. So George MacDonald understood that. He understood that we shouldn't be afraid of doubt, that we shouldn't react with kind of condemnation and squashing. And that happened a lot in the 19th century. A young person would express doubts about the faith, which was just a normal part of their intellectual maturity. What does it mean to believe this? And they would be responded with authority. How dare you say that, you little blasphemer? You know, you're an atheist. And they would think, oh, I must be an atheist, (laughs) when actually they're Mm -hmm. just a normal, intelligent person trying to think about what something means. So he realized that doubt is a way for appropriating faith in a deeper way. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't be squashing it. We should be helping people think through all of the issues of faith. And then finally, re-enchantment, which fits his fantasy world so well, but I've also was using that as a kind of code word for sanctification and the way we started this interview, that he really believed that life should be a journey of holiness, of drawing closer to a holy God and becoming more like him. Well, um, the the idea of it's, it's when you, when we look at the suffering and the troubles in the world around us, it's sometimes pretty hard to believe that we live in an enchanted place. But to me, when, when I read MacDonald, I can feel the presence of this greater world around me. And it helps me to even sort of see through, or it puts me in the mood to kind of see through um, the shadow lands that I'm in right now to a, a better and brighter world that is that is coming. So I really appreciate uh, your work on bringing McDonald's, on helping to let more people know about McDonald's uh, life and his work. And that, so just as we're kind of wrapping up, I was wondering if you had any any further thoughts you'd like to share about uh, McDonald and the meaning of his life and his work. 
Yeah, just picking up on what you said there, he understands that imagination is a gift from God. It's a way that we apprehend spiritual reality and realities of all kinds. The kind of opposite in the Victorian period, uh, Charles Dickens satirizes in his uh, novel Hard Times, a education of children which tries to have no imagination, which is just about facts and utility. And what you find there is you're not actually becoming more fully human and better educated. You're getting a stilted, partial human life and education. And so McDonald had a sense that God has given us imagination. It's a gift from him and that it serves him. Obviously, every gift can be abused, but imagination can be a way for you to understand the human condition and human reality and life and life in the spirit more deeply and more beautifully. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy academic schedule, professional schedule, to share about your about your work work on George McDonald's. And uh, so I encourage everybody to um, take a look at this book and some of other Dr. Larson's work. I think especially if you want to, if you're interested in the Victorians and, and the, their area and uh, their experience. God bless you, David. It's been good talking with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.